Next station is Metropolis. 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 <laughs> Welcome to Metropolis, a podcast series presented by the student from the Urban Master at the Versailles School of Architecture. In each station, a guest will tell us about his vision of the city, its conception, its density, its future, and more. Hello, Mr. Thomas Jess. Thank you for being here today and welcome to the Metropolis Podcasts. Mr. Jess works at Papla Barcelona. Could you give us a short intro? Could you give us a short introduction of who you are, where you're from, where you studied, and what your current occupation is? Sure. Um, thank you, uh, Luisa, for the invitation. Yeah, my name is Tomas Diaz. Um, I not only work in FabLab Barcelona, I work also in the Global FabLab Network as well as in the Fab City Global Initiative and most recently in the Meaningful Design Group here in Bali. I am a Venezuela-born uh, urbanist. I, I did study urbanism uh, in Caracas. I then did a diploma in social work in Cuba. And then I ended up in Barcelona at, at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, where I set up the FabLab Barcelona together with my colleagues, Victor and, and, and Shane. And uh, I did a master also at IAC. Uh, I did a diploma in digital fabrication in the class, how to make almost anything at MIT. Uh, and all, I think like a mark profile is kind of a combination of all of, of all those things. No? Like all the learning journey that I've been having Uh, during my life and I had been lucky enough to turn it into projects, to turn it into programs as well, and also trying to help Fab Labs to become more impactful in the world. Uh, it started in 2007 when we opened, uh, there were around 10 Fab Labs in the world. Now there are around 2,000. So that's a little bit about me, about Fab Lab Barcelona. So today, as aspiring architects and urban planners, it is our duty to ask ourselves, what kind of city do we want to live in? What makes a good city? How can we strive to have a holistic approach to urban planning, especially and more relevantly in today's climate? That is why each day we hope to get some key answers through looking at the questions of density, ecology, and city planning. To begin, we wanted to ask you a few quick icebreaker questions to introduce yourself, questions that we're asking to all of our guests. First, Is there a particular city that inspires you? I will be romantic and I will say Caracas uh, for how beautiful it is, for being a, a, a city full of incredible architecture and incredible uh, interventions uh, from planners, engineers uh, in all its history. Also from where it is located, the beautiful mountain of El Avila, is looking at the city and it's impressive. It's just a one hour drive to the ocean, to the, to the Caribbean, Caribbean Sea actually. Um, and, and it's just a beautiful valley. Uh, it's incredible. And the, it's always spring in Caracas. Yes, I can really get that. The particular mix of this very urban area in the middle of this very particular natural setup it must be really, really exceptional. Exactly. And, and, and with some amazing modern architecture, like especially Caracas, 
La, the Belle Epoque of Caracas in Venezuela was the, you know, the 40s, 50s, even the 60s, right? Um, and you, you know, maybe the 70s is where things got to their peak and started to go down. But you find, you know, uh, architects like Carlos Raúl Villanueva and and his uh, university and central of the, the Central University of Venezuela is is, is a masterpiece. La, and I say romantic because it's a place that I haven't been able to be in, in a few years um, because the situation there. But uh, I have to say that, yeah, it inspires me because it's where I was born also. Now, is there a book you want to share? I think that there are probably two books that I read without any order. And I, actually, there are books that I haven't finished and they are go back and forward and And there, you can always learn something out of them. One uh, is, is the is it's probably something very common in the in the design world. is 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 called Design for the Real World, and it's a, a book by Victor Papanek, uh, also a key the thinker designer and, and that passed away a few years ago, but. Um, that managed to polish, I think the design for the real world is, is late 60s or 70s. And, and it was already a book that was showing the, you know, the issues that we would find today. So it was very uh, clear about where our industrial society was going and especially which were the challenges in design uh, that we had already by that time, we still have. And what we had been doing is actually making worse. So it's really a It's always a lesson to read uh, uh, parts of that book. And another one that is, is actually a collection of essays uh, is, is, uh, is uh, Towards an Ecology of Mind uh, by Gregory Bateson. And I think also like Gregory Bateson uh, is someone from whom we still have to learn a lot. Actually, he spent a lot of time in Indonesia, where I am now. Um, and, and Gregory Bateson uh, really kind of opens a new worldview on how to connect with natural system, how to how to, how to understand our role as humans in relationship with other species. Uh, and I believe that actually the two books can be very complementary. Is there a particular architect you admire? I don't know because you know, like uh, the problem with architects is that you know, you can admire them so much because the kind of things that they do, but then become such a terrible personalities or, or characters that, that you basically turn down all that uh, admiration that you can have for them. Uh, I think like at the, the especially the star, the star architects had, you know, that we have been suffering <laughs> in the recent years uh, have produced really uh I don't know, first of all, like a catastrophes around the world, because once an architect is famous, it seems to have like a full license to do anything just because he's a great architect or was a great architect. Uh, and then um, because it, it, it fits like a, this idea of the architect, uh, the architecture of the ego, right? And, and, and architecture seems like a, where the most egoistic people Uh, it's kind of uh, finding a, a safe place and developing yeah, as much as possible their ego through buildings and through and through designing objects of any form. Um, you know, making that this.
Ja. Absolutely. And I believe that, you know, uh, making that disclaimer, um, I think like my whole point is that you are not only, I believe like you're not only a great architect, if you're able to make big buildings or to innovate with some material or, or to make beautiful buildings or to make a great intervention in our public space. I think also it's part of being an architect. It's also being a, a, a good person and a good human being if you want to put yourself as a, such a grand character right that you are able to create this for the people uh um i think like that you should not use that in order to go over the people right and for instance here in indonesia to give you an a, you know kind of a reference when you have a certain name and where you are kind of a recognized by your community as someone that has an, a special uh, position in society uh, then you are, have the responsibility to give back and it's automatic. Like a, it's more like a, your duty to be someone that is constantly giving and, and making others better. And I, you know, I, I work with architects enough to see totally the opposite. It's kind of using other people to make themselves better, right? So making this disclaimer, and I hope that you don't uh, cut that much of this because I think this is important for architects to listen. I would say that I will take my chances uh, and, and I'm, you know, I think like uh, some people might hate him, but uh, I believe that the, the, the role of, of, of the influence that Rem Kool has, has have had uh, is, is immense, to be honest. Uh, it's huge. Uh, I, I will say for myself my opinion on his personality, but I believe that he has been a great architect, uh, innovative, not only in the practice of the more traditional architecture, but also introducing us a more a deeper architect that uh, thinks beyond buildings and and beyond objects and and it's able to also uh, evolve itself uh, himself or herself in uh, in politics right so i think also renkul has is a, it's a very very interesting politician if you want to call it like that um, and a very multifaceted uh, uh, architect as well so Especially, yeah, you know, me being an urbanist also, uh, I, I think, you know, reading um, Delirious New York uh, and, and also, um, you know, other publications that, like the one all that um, the books on the, um, uh, on the Pearl River Delta in China was also very like anticipating and many things that happened afterwards. So, yeah. Uh, the admiration goes to Rem Kulhas. <laughs> now, a uh, building you keep coming back to? Um, it's a funny question for me because, you know, I, I don't have that kind of obsession for buildings. Again, I, 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 I've been working and living surrounded by architects. My, sis my sister is an architect. My, my colleagues at EAC, most of them have been architects until certain point. So I really managed to breathe architecture and, and, and to be surrounded by architecture uh, and sometimes even kind of a, like a, a, an imposter architect in some cases myself. But um, I have not a particular interest on, on admiring one building, let's say, uh, or, you know, that this kind of a, a, as a, as a piece of art made by someone not even from Rem Kulhas, to be honest. On the main topic, 
so part of your work is somehow related to bottom-up planning and empowering the citizen in the decisions usually made by a handful of urban planners. Uh, what would be the right balance of power between citizen and decision makers according to you in relation of smart citizens, for example? Yeah, I think that um, bottom-up planning, especially in participatory planning, is, um, is something that has been very trendy and is, is, is become also like a favorite word for some urbanists as well as for some politicians. Um, because somehow that kind of uh, is, um, it gives a sense of validation of some ideas that you have about uh, intervening in a specific setting and, and, and getting the approval or, or even involving citizens in the, um, in the co-designing process or the decision-making process is something that, again, you know, seems to be good for the project, right? For, for whichever project you do. Um, there are really big challenges in relationship with this type of urban planning because one is the which is the right representation and when that validation is enough even if you know out of uh, 1,000 neighbors 10 participate is that one percent uh, recognizable and, and and is this the 10 people representing all the entire voices of 1,000 people? Are the tools that are not exciting enough to make the other uh, 990 people to participate? That's the other question. Uh, and, and, and really, I think like it's, a, it's something that only few people, you know, I, I don't think that anyone has solved that issue, even um, knowing experiences that are happening in Barcelona, like the platform Decidim, where budgeting or decision-making around where to you know, put uh, public equi equipment in the city is, uh, is voted uh, online uh, using a platform. No? Um, I've been seeing politicians using this to justify decisions. So it's, it's mostly like oh, the people voted this, like, well, it's not true. It's just like a small percentage and then and some, and, the, and people was really, probably choosing already something that was decided <laughs> from minute zero, right? So what uh, we were trying to do with the smart citizen is to um, basically maybe um, connect different trends that were happening in one moment. First, like um, the emergence of smart cities uh, um, in 2011 was bringing the idea that technology by itself was going to make the city better, right? There would be like a, this super intelligent layer of technology introduced by companies like Intel, Ericsson, or, or, or IBM that was going to make cities more efficient. And then governments will have better tools to, make, to, to take decisions. So we saw like at this top-down, you know, very aggressive strategy, a lot of marketing on first of all, creating profit opportunities for companies and in the other hand, creating more control for the government. So that was happening when at the same time we were having um, Fab Labs growing, you know, and the maker movement growing really fast around the world. And we're saying like, look, uh, a city that is smart is not because it has some central computer that processes the information that happens in the city. It's a city that is capable to generate intelligence out of the 
you know, the main agents that makes a city alive, which is the citizens. So how we can connect the technologies that are available in these maker spaces and fab labs and turn them into tools in order for citizens to become part of that collective intelligence that the city has already. Um, so we develop a low cost open source uh, sensor that would measure pollution in the city. And then we were assuming that citizens would like to put this sensor in their balcony and start to capture data in order to produce you know, more credible information about where the pollution and um, noise pollution or, or air pollution was happening in the city. So we were wrong because we developed uh, a technology that was not really desired by citizen in the, in citizens in the first hand. It was a technology that we, the geeks and designers, thought that citizens would like. And then what happened is that we work in a in a in a with a different level uh, in relationship with smart citizen, thanks to an European project called Making Sense, and and we developed the tools to engage with communities. So it means like a, we have the technology, which is the hardware and software, but we needed like a, the soft software, which is okay. Which are the strategies to first of all and start a conversation with a community, make them part of a, of the process in which you know they were identifying which are the which were the issues that they were really concerned about and it happens that in one of the pilots that we did it was the noise in one of the neighborhoods in barcelona and and then after that selected which is the pro the appropriate technology for that problem right the technology would follow what uh, people need and and then once that happened how we can help citizens to learn about the use of that technology made them the, the main use producers uh, of information uh, in, in using uh, those sensors. So luckily we succeeded uh, on, on, on this process and we were surprised that we had an initial support by the city council, and, but this proved to be a very powerful tool because citizens were starting to see like a objective data that was proving that the level of noises that of noise in this public space was above the the one that the European you know the uh, world world uh, health organization was allowing and it's not about like a, you know it's not the neighbor that has sensitive ears it's the sensor it's the data that was proving that that was happening so the citizens put so much pressure into the council that they transformed all the regulation around this public space that was in uh, Plaza del Sol in Gracia and I believe that the city council wanted to avoid this kind of a hardcore participation uh, because we never understood why we didn't push forward in other places of the city for this project to happen um, and this was with a progressive government it's the same progressive government that, that is promoting tools for citizens to vote in online about certain things that they publish in the in in, so in the deciding platform and stuff so we're doing pilot, we keep doing pilots and also deployments of smart citizens around the world. And I believe that that's just like a very tiny example uh, uh, that can show the power of, of, of technology for sure, but also how important it's not just to follow technology and to start a conversation uh, with communities and dedicate time to that. The problem is that Everybody's impatient. No one, nobody wants to talk. Everybody wants to impose their agenda. 
then everyone else is creating tools to justify that agenda. Um, I can see that. Um, it, it's interesting that somehow you created the technology and then you thought maybe we can do something about it. Well, we thought, well, at the beginning, we thought that it was a great idea to make a sensor and citizens. Actually, it was crowdfunded twice. So we had a small validation. We put it in Kickstarter and we put it also in Goteo. So there was like a certain desire from an amount of, or a group of people to have these sensors. But we realized that these people was, were not like a, the, the typical neighbor, right? It was more like a technology enthusiasts or people with some activism mindset. And then when we were talking with the kind of, you know, people, neighbors, just neighbors that they want, you know, their public space to be, to be better. They, they didn't even know I watched a browser. They didn't even know I watched a, a, a sensor. You know what I mean? Like a, they were barely digital literates. So we really had to train the neighbors and understand what they were doing when, you know, we developed like a, the most simple way to program the sensor boards. Um, and, but it needed a lot of time and a lot of support. And, and before that, that was the other work, which is, okay, and we can have the technology and we make it flexible enough. It's actually modular because we understand that there are different applications, right? We're using, we have been using smart citizen, you know, for applications related um, with noise, with air quality, uh, but we can eventually use it for water pollution and we can use it for, um, I don't know, measuring electromagnetic frequencies because we can connect other sensors, right? And then it depends on the application that a specific community or researchers want to use it for. So now we want to keep going in that direction and then being able to help people interested in the sensors to understand that the sensors are not enough. You know, the sensors and a, and a digital platform is not enough. It's also important to consider the tools or, or like the methodologies and, and, and that you can use in order to engage with your community. And we actually published uh, the Making Sense Toolkit, which anyone can download from, from the website uh, in order to, to use those methods and apply them in their, in their own sensor deployments. Uh, and so by now, how many... Um... The smart citizens are there, literally. I think that we have produced maybe near over 3,000 sensors, uh, which is not a lot, but um, it's something I, I, I'm not sure how many of them are online. What happens is that some of the sensors are used for a specific deployment. Let's say people that do an experiment for few months uh, or researchers that are doing a, a specific study. Um, but I think if you go to a smartcitizen.me, you can check the amount of sensors we have. But I would say that, but those are the sensors that are connected or have been connected. But in terms of production, I can tell you that, yeah, we have made over, let me see, this is, only in Europe, yeah, 2,187. They have been registered at least once. And in the rest of the world, maybe another, you know, close to another 600. So let's say it's close to, to 3,000 sensors that at least have been registered once in our platform. 
um, they are all, you know, but we have produced over 3000 and, and also we're doing now even new sensors, which are uh, a, like a higher quality sensors that are able to produce more precise data. I think that the, the example that I gave about uh, the plaza uh, in Barcelona, Plaza del Sol, uh, is quite powerful because it transformed the urban planning of the plaza itself. It means that the city council really look at, at the information that the citizens were collecting that was proving that uh, it was very obvious, but it was important to do this exercise for um, citizens to have a voice all together and say, look, the amount of noise that is happening in this public space is completely crazy. And we have been complaining about this for 20 years and you have done nothing. Now we have evidence that it says that this is about the levels, even inside our houses with the door, with the windows closed, we're having levels of noise that, is in, that are not allowed by the World Health Organization or the European Union. So you have to do something. And, and what the city council did is first of all, started to take out people drinking in the plaza earlier in the night with the police, but then uh, it started like a participatory process of designing a, a new plaza and uh, turning into a plaza for the neighborhood and not for the people coming to drink in the neighborhood. Because it was easier for the city council to, co to concentrate or to allow people to drink in this plaza because you then concentrate the problem into one point and don't let people drink in the entire neighborhood, right? So um, that's a plaza that really trans was, transform was transformed by that intervention. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have to say that a lot of the projects, there, there was another interesting project that we did in, um, in a school in, in, Saba, in Badalona, in, which is at the north of Barcelona. And uh, this experiment was done by was done by kids, and the kids put a sensor in the in the window of the school because the the, the city council put a a bus stop that was near to one of the the window of the, their classroom. So every time the bus stop was coming and departing to the bus stop was generating pollution and was generating noise. So the kids were able to demonstrate to their city council that this was a problem for their learning uh, in general. And the city council changed that bus for an electric bus. It's really funny. Actually, what I find interesting is that it's not even like uh, the, the urban planners and municipalities decided that, yeah, maybe we're gonna, going to uh, give the tools to the population to have that um, uh, population approval and validate their project. It's really the citizens and maybe even the children that um, were given the tool and were saying like, "Hey, we need a specific uh, uh, we need a specific project for this place because we have a problem here." So it's really a full empowerment of the the people and the citizens. Yeah, it's, it's, it's technology following people and not people following technology, right? I mean, ideally, and, and, and I believe that that's, you know, that's one of the main learnings that we have taken out of, you know, working on, on a smart citizen, which is a project that is still alive. Also, I, I want people to understand that 
it's easy to say, oh, this is not, uh, you know, uh, kind of as famous as um, Instagram, no, <laughs> or as it's other type of technology, which is complex and, and it's trying to do things, not following just the typical model of, of, of a startup, let's say that, okay, it's like, okay, let's try to monetize this data and sell it to other companies. Well, we haven't been successful in that way. Uh, instead, we have been doing smaller deployments, taking things a little bit slowly and trying to make uh, meaningful decisions every step on every uh, iteration that we do with the project. And here we are, like, um, you know, we, we launched for the first time Smart Citizen in, in Amsterdam in 2011. And here we are 10 years after alive, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that we are selling millions of sensors in the world, as you can see, but you know we we are very proud of what we have done so far, and and, and I think like uh, what you know the type of um, economy in which something like this could be very powerful is in the emergent distributed technology that could be enabled by blockchain, for instance. No? So you can have citizens owning sensors, producing data. Uh, putting these sensors in a blockchain and the, in the blockchain in, in form of a, uh, some sort of token. You know, now everybody's talking about NFTs, but it could be other type of token that other people needing or other institutions needing that data can buy using also cryptocurrencies. So the citizen can be part of the infrastructure of the city and get a reward or get, or get paid because it generates data that is meaningful for third parties. So I can tell you, like, imagine like a real estate company paying for data generated by citizens in one specific area in order to understand the levels of pollution or noise uh, uh, before making a big investment, which can generate other consequences, which is the segregation of areas based on the data that the census produce. So you can easily have an area that has like a poor air quality, and then some people can manipulate that data, lower the prices of the land, buy, and then put the sensors back on track and then say, oh, then and now it's clean and then the land price goes higher. So this is the kind of things that I, I think that we will start to see and uh, not far, not that, not that far from now. And it will be interesting to see how we're going to deal with those problems. Uh, I will not have thought of this, but you, you, you seem to have spent quite a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, when you're trying to figure out things that do not have like a clear solution, you think about all the, the possible scenarios and, and that's one of those for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can't plan for everything, but at least if you're trying to, maybe we can, we can think in those problems in advance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I came across projects like Cisco or Centrino that are related to relo re relocating, so, sorry, I'm going to remake that, that sentence, uh, that are related to re relocating part of the production in the cities, uh, which is a big problematic for Fab Labs in general, I guess. So is it one of your objectives? And could you talk a little about these projects? Yeah, I mean, these are, are actually these, these projects and together, Centrino, Reflow, which is another project that we led intellectually and we're in, in, in writing the, the, the proposal and, and projects like um, Centrino as well as, um, as Cis, um, Cisco that you mentioned, they follow the principles of a fab city. 
global initiative, right? And the whole idea behind um, Fab Cities is, is, is to really understand that in order to transform the way in which we live in cities, we need to look not only at beautiful plazas or electric vehicles or, you know, more beautiful buildings, uh, it's really think about how cities, fun cities function and how we organize a society and how this organized society organizes around work and production and how all of this is related with value, right? I say this because uh, the way in which cities function today is basically, um, it, you know, a model, an urban model that is um, sustained by the global economy that is able to provide supplies uh, to cities, right? The cities lost most of their capabilities to produce locally what citizens need. And they are relying on global supply chains uh, that are sustained uh, by cheap labor, uh, by cheap raw materials, by cheap modes of energy, uh, sources of energy to move these materials around the world. So it's based on, a, in, in this cheap idea of cheapness is actually, is, is mostly unfair uh, because we have modern slavery and we have uh, dictatorships taking over natural resources or fake democracies taking um, control of natural resources or providing all the access to natural resources to multinationals in order to sustain this kind of nonsensical global economy that is pushing for consumption, 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 because we have to grow, grow, grow to generate profit, profit, profit. So uh, advocating to transform that is, 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 is I think it's you know, it's not a problem of the global economy, but it also relates with the way in which cities function. And they are big, like these animals that are sucking stuff from everywhere else. Now, if you cannot think about Moscow or Barcelona uh, as, you know, cities that are, they, they end where their limits, their political limits end because they, de they depend of, on the container ships that are in the middle of the uh, Atlantic Ocean shipping things. They depend on the mines in the Congo. They depend on the aluminum coming from Australia. They depend on factories located in Vietnam and China. So um, if we are able to provide cities with the capacity to produce almost anything they need, uh, in terms of um, when I talk about products, it's not only you know objects like you know, a mobile phone or, or a chair. Um, we can talk about food as well. Uh, you know, uh, most of the cities depend on like a food chains that are really fragile. Um, and when I talk about production, also I talk about energy. Uh, when I talk about cities being capable to control their resources, I'm talking also about water or uh, the information sovereignty that cities should have. So what we're looking at with these projects and, and you know, all this Fab City Global Initiative, which is the kind of, um, I think like a little bit of um, a common denominator of all these projects is to uh, enable a process in which cities progressively start to build uh, a local infrastructure uh, and skills and innovation and strategies at the local level that are oriented towards recovering that capacity to produce locally in order to uh, transform dramatically the way we live in cities. Because when you can have the access to the means that allow you to produce what you need in order to live, 
that somehow all this nonsensical relationship with that we have with the production of value in order to buy things uh, could be broken. And I mean about this nonsensical relationship about uh, when I'm referring to studying something that you hate to work in a work that you don't like also uh, to earn money in order to buy things that you don't need, right? Uh, so if we can, we're able to dedicate time in, in learning how to make things, imagine, no? like uh, how to reconnect uh, with the natural systems that are around you, around your city, in, in your neighborhood and, and use technology in order to enable this process. It sounds utopia, an utopia, uh, but you know, given the growth of access to tools and technology that I have seen in the last, you know, 15 years to 20 years, I believe that you know we're getting towards uh, to a technological revolution that is gonna is gonna basically connect with um, the multiple crises that we are having today, um, that will somehow open an opportunity to reinvent. Uh, this product, global production system. I have to say also that I've seen the growth of uh, human stupidity, which is going to probably uh, stop uh, this to happen. And 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 the, the fact that we have more technology is not making us more intelligent. In some cases, it's making us more stupid. And and also what we and not you know I'm from Venezuela and 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 the 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 way in which I've seen a country collapsing thanks to the desire of controlling the natural resources and the grip of power and the ambition and the greed of keeping generating profits, it's something that is not gonna change from one way to another. But there's some hope. That's what we want to do with this uh, Fab City and also through these projects um, supported by the Horizon 2020 program of the European Union, we want to uh, develop clear strategies that support new educational models, new experimentation and neighborhoods with different actors, uh, understand how the material flows change into a city in order to achieve that emerging urban model that we believe um, will make possible for humans to inhabit this planet for, for the years to come. I really like that utopia and that possibility. Yet, somehow, to me, cities are meant to work on the bigger scale. I mean, originally, they existed thanks to agriculture being effective enough that it could provide food to people specializing in other activities. And those projects uh, you presented, they work around that idea quite cleverly uh, with the use of 3D printing, which is an amazing technology. But as for now, it requires quite some participation, time and implication from the people taking part of it. In a certain way, we're trading our comfort and current way of living uh, for that sustainability. Then my question is the following. How would you see the steps, the transition towards this more sustainable future you're trying to depict? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really efficient uh, to produce one thing millions of times. Like, uh, and, um, and concentrate production to generate efficiencies and, 
um, and you know to generate economies of scale. Uh, but I think like we we have taken this into almost like an irrational model in which we are importing products that doesn't make sense to import just because they are cheaper to be made by uh, slaves in the other sides of the world and then being shipped with oil uh, powered containers or airplanes basically oil controlled by non-democratic regimes oppressing population in order to keep the control of the natural resource so yeah we can pretend that people can keep living like this forever but it's not viable also it's not viable to uh, to this is what's the promise of the industrial society like no you should not worry about what you eat and and we will provide you the food we will provide you the products you just have to work in order to get the money to get them <laughs> and by the way you're going to work in in, a, in this box for nine hours a day and for eight hours a day from nine to five and uh, we'll give you the and in you know a pension for you to live for the rest days of your life uh, going to the same cafe and smoke a cigarette and have a beer with other people retiring and if you are lucky you maybe go for a cruise ship uh, uh, in the caribbean right and that's that's kind of a, the the promise the promised land of the welfare state and then and the kind of industrial civilization it's bullshit it's like uh, you know would you we are making like a people that to be more dependent on larger systems that they understand less and less. And, and I'm including all of us, we are all you know, consuming technology that is full of blood. Every single, you know, if you look at the electronics, if you look at the labor that is assembling these circuits, if you look at the, again, the oil that powers the transport of the products that we have, it's unfair. It's unfair. It's unfair to have people in Bangladesh working for I don't know, cents of a dollar per day in order for us to buy cheap things in Sara uh, or in, uh, or in, what is the name? Or H&M, right? So yeah, it's efficient and it's convenient, but it's unviable. It makes you more dependent. Uh, and basically the more we push for this model, the less years we're gonna have of life in this planet because we are depleting here in Borneo, you know, like a very close, we're depleting the jungle in order to eat more Nutella for the palm oil. So I don't know. I don't, for me, it doesn't make sense to be honest. And if it's about like a keeping the status quo and, and to keep again, uh, this idea of, uh, of the industrial society, then we should at least know that there's going to be a, you know, this is this is not something that is will is sustainable for for too many more not many more decades actually um and also i don't know if we you we are okay on going to sleep every day knowing that you know we're fucking up other people's life and and other species while uh, we're having our convenience um I'm not saying like a let's go to the forest and and disconnect from society what i'm saying is like a day's use all this progress that we have been able to generate and let's try to think the ones that we have been privileged enough to have the freedom of, of choice of what to study and, and what to do. Let's use our computing power here in our brain 
in order to think about possible futures that we can create if we really think about the fundamental transformations of our socioeconomic system, of the fundamental transformation in the way in which we relate with other species, where, you know, how we think about our relationship with nature is. If it's nature serves us or it's more like a collaboration and we find ways to collaborate with nature without compromising other species habitats as we have been doing. So, you know, we can use alternatives to, to palm oil and, and maybe Nutella will taste different for fuck it. It's more important that Nutella tastes different than depleting, you know, entire forests uh, and, and, and taking away uh, the, in the habitats of orangutans, for instance. Or let's think it even more selfish, like a, it's just stupid that, you know, in order to eat more tasteful Nutella, we are taking away oxygen from ourselves. Let's put it in that way. So I think that that's a kind of a fundamental questions that we need to make to ourselves. And also, finally, how we want to relate to each other. Are we happy with having people, you know, living shitty lives in which they have no choice, getting paid just pennies in order for them to do a repetitive job every day, in order for us to have access to the great gifts of this big colony that we have created, especially the Western society? Uh, I don't know. I, I believe that. If we are not able to question ourselves that, um, there will be no future for anyone. There will be no oxygen, there will be no species, there will be not enough resources for anyone because we are so greedy that we wanted to take it all. Frankly, I can only agree with uh, your point. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's more like... I told you this was going to be a bit No, loaded. it's all right. <laughs> but it's more like I'm kind of pessimistic. Like... I can't see the change really, um, really going like uh, because because um, in the end um, humans are really lazy persons. Like uh, if one option is more comfortable, you'll find ten percent to say no. The other option is better. It's more moral, and on the long term, it's going to be better. Because uh, right now, we we can't keep going that way. But uh, maybe 90% yeah. is going to be, well, yeah, but my, my way of living is more comfortable today. So, yeah, but the thing is like, you know, we had been also, I believe that to be critical from the other side, I believe like uh, the ecologist movements and, and our, our, even ourselves, we need to find better ways of picturing a future that is more exciting. And it's not just about like a less you know, Nutella will be shitty in the kind of future we're selling you. <laughs> no, it's going to be, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be different, you know, like, uh, yeah, we can still feel the pleasure. We, we will still be able to enjoy and, and have a convenient life, but let's just try to figure, we are intelligent enough on trying to figure this out without trying to, you know, again, eliminate valuable things that sustain life in this planet, valuable natural systems, valuable species, and without having to put human beings, other human beings in a very low level. But we need to really create a narrative and a discourse that is exciting. 
And we, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Like, I'm, you know, what I was just saying, maybe it's not that exciting. I'm, I'm trying to create a little bit of drama for people to really say, okay, this is not possible. But then the next thing I'm going to tell you is not like you have to suffer and, 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 and kid yourself with a whip and, 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 you know, but it's actually, okay, let's figure this out and let's have fun while we, we figure this out. And this is what we're trying to do with Fab City Hubs, what we're trying to do with Fab Labs to become those social spaces where people get together and try to figure out how to get out in a good way. Having fun is a part of a social activity. Learning is something that should be fun. Um, you know, institutions have been making learning painful and, and expensive and, and, you know, terrible. So let's make it just part of uh, the everyday life you know like we assume that it's normal to get drunk and wasted and and and, and, and it seems like a learning became like a the stupid thing to do and it's the other way around so it should be exciting and we should look at the social our social activities a little bit differently and and get together to learn i think is is something that we really need to consider <laughs> In France and around the world, the pandemic has completely disturbed city usages. Uh, how do you think COVID is going to affect the future of city planning? Uh, is it uh, an intense but temporary turmoil or do you see long lasting lifestyle changes? Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse, I don't know. I think like uh, for cities, the, the pandemic has been a little bit, um terrible <laughs> um, and i'm talking about like a mostly like a, the power of cities because before the pandemic i think that there was like a, a really clear trend towards the power of cities or smaller regions um you know there's this very famous book of, of benjamin barber about talking about uh, you know a, 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 his book is, is if mayors rules the world and he was taking like a cities to replace nations because cities are closer to citizens is something that Nicolas Legroponte also claimed that we should have by 2050, the United Nations of Cities. I think like at the, one of the worst things that have happened with the pandemic is to return the power to the nation states, which is at the most corrupt and most obsolete form of human organization in the world. First of all, because the majority of nations are invented or are based on previous process of colonization that were terrible for many people. Um, and we have lived cities more like um, at the disposal of the national strategies uh, around the pandemic. And sometimes the people that work at the national level don't understand how cities work. So in, that's in one hand for me that has been catastrophic for cities. And, and that's what, how it's going to affect the future city planning that is probably going to go back to the national level uh, and 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 cities are starting to be a little bit powerless in relationship to that, uh, that shift of where the decision is placed, right? Um, I believe that, you know, of course, it's the obvious uh, reduction of um, um, on the mobility of people. And, and, and in some cases in cities like Barcelona, it had increased uh, the, the, the usage of a public space uh, and reducing the influence of a car um which seems to be something that will be sustained uh, uh in the long term uh, 
But in other cities, like in American cities, I'll go back and, you know, the car has become like a the safe place to be in a city during the pandemic, right? So um, Europe lives in its own bubble, but the, the, the rest of the world keeps going in the wrong direction, in my opinion, which is more cars, uh, more private transportation and, um, and, 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 and infinite growth, right? And, and, and the kind of urbanization that is taking place in emerging economies is also catastrophic to be honest so um as you can see i'm not very positive on on how let's say how if we look if we make an analysis looking at as business as usual at the same time i think that there are emerging like a new forms of organization i think people will be more and more disconnected with these decision making uh, centers and people will organize themselves there are more tools to organize people uh that i believe are going to emerge as well uh, I, I hope to see a shift into the politics and i think that identity politics is going hopefully is going to uh, hopefully to um, evolve and, and, and we can have a more like a, a politics of purpose no like I think about which is the purpose as we have as communities and as humanity and look for for sharing that and not go back to this kind of uh, nationalism or, or or reading about politics in, in the claim of a desire of connecting with a past that already uh, or will never come back. And then I want to connect that comment with my last one, which I believe that you know uh, people were there were some people that imagined that this was temporary and they will go back, no, go back to normal. That was kind of okay. Don't worry. This is just a few months. We will be back to normal when we go back to normal. That never happened. Then now people started to talk. Well, well, this is a new normal, right? And everybody's the, the new normal became part even of national strategies. And I think that's a trend that already disappeared from our our, our language. And now we're starting to see like a more subtle. Um, change of of lifestyle but i hope that it's also an opportunity at least in the people that have the chance to to take decisions and and to find that time uh, to reflect and to have an awakening and you know from the people i talk to they i see people that they are starting to realize how meaningless were their lives and 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 how stupid there are so many things that they were doing before and you know they're kind of a deeply thinking about how things could be done differently. Um, so I believe like it's not only about lifestyle and the superficial level, but also like a, this deeper reflection about what it means uh, for us to to you know to be human, what it means to to connect to each other, what it means to connect with nature. That's what we were talking before, um, and and probably. You know, some people, I, I also see that some people uh, will not have any other chance other chance, but to change dramatically their, their life due to the effect of the pandemic. That could be positive, hopefully. Uh, and there will be people that they will, be, will have the chance of changing their life due to the pandemic. And they can, and those people will be, I think, also key people because those are the ones that they can, Probably they have already the resources and and, and, and and the capacity to support this transformation on on the on 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 how we live and work and play in cities. 
Um, and, and I think this is the people, if they try to go back, is when they're going to be smashed uh, by reality. So, yeah, I see like um, deep, long lasting changes. And I try to see them in a positive way because I hope that those serve to dismount the current state of affairs. Well, you've struck me as being quite optimistic and positive in your general approach. So I hope you're having a, a positive uh, and optimistic approach on, on that question in particular. Uh, thank you for that conclusion and thank you for your time. Um, I hope that was a nice experience for you. Yeah. Yeah, I try to be as as you know as open and, and direct as possible. I hope that was not too confusing, and and I hope this is useful for some people to connect with some of the ideas that we are working on, trying to turn them into real projects, and and doing small. We're trying to do small great things, so I hope that uh, some of those. Uh, um, projects can inspire or can connect with other people and 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 you know maybe work together um, in trying to create the world we want and not be victims of it indeed uh, <laughs> thank you very much thank you luisa